0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are speaking with Peter Wilkinson, chair of Wilkinson Butler Consultants, who specialize in crisis communications. And Peter will be presenting later this year at the ASIAL Security Conference. And one of the things that we are going to be talking to Peter today about is the importance of crisis communication in the role of the modern security manager. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Now, I imagine. Peter, that the two biggest mistakes that you see people, especially in the security space, make uh, when it comes to crisis communication is A, number one, not having a plan, and B, thinking that the best plan is to just hide under the table until the 24-hour news cycle rolls over and then just making praying it'll all go away.
1: And there's a third option, and that's thinking tactically. Right. So, oh, we'll do this and everything will go away. And as your audience would know very well, things don't go away in a crisis that easily. The, the art of communications in a crisis is to let the various stakeholders who are impacted by the crisis have the understand that the company is doing everything it possibly can to mitigate the damage. Now, this can be loss of sales, it can be loss of reputation. And inevitably, we don't move from bad to a good situation. We move from a bad to, to a less bad situation and long-term, hopefully, to a situation where the company is respected for the way that they dealt with the crisis and the way they emerged from it. Yeah. And we look at, And to do that, we look at the various stakeholders, It can be customers. It can be staff. It can be the board managing upwards. It can be the regulators, ASIC. It can be uh, government politicians, suppliers, contractors, and so on. And what we do is we look at the objective for each stakeholder. It can be to minimise the damage from media. It can be to optimise the conversation on social media. It can be to make sure government understands the truth about what's happened, et cetera.
0: I I think you made a really important point at the outset there about protecting sales and brand because one of the things that seems to be paramount in crisis communications is the notion that you can spend 10, 20, 30 years building a brand and building trust with customers and you can destroy that in a matter of seconds. And I think BP and the Deep Horizon oil rig was a fantastic example of that.
1: Yep, and there are many more current, uh, many more ones since then. The Du if we're talking about uh, big companies, you can talk about Rio Tinto and the Jukan Gorge um, is a is a recent one. Uh, where and now, in both those cases, they're interesting because the first thing you have to do is you have to manage the external aspect of the crisis. How you deal with media, how you deal with social media currently not so relevant and back in the Gulf of Mexico, but social media now critical. And then there's the external engagement with governments and stuff like that. But the other really important aspect is turning the mirror back on the company. And in both those cases, my role is to advise the company that they are out of communication with, out of um, step with community expectations. And in both those cases, People like me and others, of course, recommended a change in the board, which occurred, and hopefully, in the case of the duquesne Gorge situation with Rio Tinto, the change has meant that the tragedy that happened in Western Australia won't be repeated. Yeah, and
0: I think there's a couple of basic fundamental principles that you know security managers through working with people like you can really hopefully help the board understand from a security point of view and perhaps I'll get you to walk us through some of those but you know there's a big difference between scapegoating and genuinely taking ownership of a situation and showing how you understand the problem and what you're going to do differently moving forward Is and you know so what are some of the biggest Mistakes that you see organisations making in these areas.
1: Every situation is different, but the the biggest mistake often is to get over the crisis and then get back to business and keep doing what you've been doing before. And it's so easy to do, and I see it time and again. It takes about, it depends on the situation, but it takes a month to two months for people to think, "Oh, look, it's behind us now." Let's not fuss too much about it. Let's not do the review, and let's not, or let's not act on the review's recommendations. That's probably the most common thing. And also, of course, people don't want to lose their jobs. And so, if it's blatantly obvious through the crisis that, let's say, it's the HR manager has really been behind the eight ball, then what? The easy way out is to say, look, mate, you're going to have to um, avoid that happening again, but not dealing with the substantive issue. That's the most common thing. So reasonably common recently has been sexual abuse cases, as, as as your audience would know. There is a process to deal with that, but inevitably it involves culture change. Yeah. And so you can deal with the thing that's staring you in the face, but the culture change is much harder. And very often to change culture, you've got to flip the CEO or flip someone who's the blockage that, that was the blockage to start with. Somebody's out of step, they're old-fashioned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, Clean Away was a recent example where Vic Bansill was accused of being a bully now it took a long while for cleanaway to move on vic bansall and from a reputation point of view they should have moved much more quickly
0: yeah and i suppose the the other area of crisis comms that a lot of people possibly in the security space don't think about these days are the unforeseen threat vectors. So you might think, well, we don't need a crisis plan. We don't need to worry too much about communications. Um, and I'll give you an example. We only manufacture um, kerosene torches, that you can stick on the end of a bamboo pole and put in your backyard for the barbecue? Where's the threat for that? And then the next thing you know, you see photos on social media of white supremacists walking down the street using your product to light the way as they're doing something horrible to a group of people. And now your company is square, smack bang in the spotlight, associated with a group that you had no intention or association with of your own volition, but now all that bad press is coming back on you. How do I deal with that?
1: Yes, so dealing with that specific case on the fly, that is a, to start with, I'd be looking at um, my customers. Yeah. And so I'd need to engage with my customers. So I'd be on the phone to Bunnings very quickly to say, we are doing this and this and this to to tell the truth about our bamboo lanterns. I'd be also working direct to customer to say this isn't a this isn't a white supremacist thing, and this is about having nice barbecues yeah. without mozzies. Yeah. Um, and that may involve advertising, but it may not. That may be an uneconomic way for a SME to deal with a situation like that. Yeah. That then there's media, then there are a variety of other things that you can do. Um little little um, uh, point of sale things that you can do to regain reputation. The important thing there is that people will forget that incident as yep. long as it's not repeated. Yeah, People will forget that incident. And so you you simply have to manage through that and then rebuild reputation knowing that in 12 months, 18 months, things will be back to normal. Yeah, and I guess the broader context
0: for the question was really, you know, not necessarily specific about that particular situation, but about the the idea that in a world of growing social media and ever-present social media, all sorts of crises can of can appear that you may not necessarily foresee or have planned for, but mm-hmm. without having plans in place... You can find yourself very quickly, I imagine. You're the expert, but you can find yourself very quickly in hot water and need to act.
1: Yeah. Look, um, the reality is people don't do plans. Yeah. You and I can scream from the rooftops about the need for plans. Um, what, What the reality, this is what really happens. Boards do a risk matrix and they have a risk and audit committee and then nothing else happens. That's the tragedy. The reality is in a crisis now, if people know, there are people like me who have got really well-developed skills. If people know who to contact quickly, um, I've been doing it for nearly 20 years now, and that's all I do. And so I can walk into almost, there aren't many situations that I haven't, been in. So, you know, as I've said earlier, sex abuse, bullying, fires, cybersecurity, um, Duquesne Gorge type situations, um, listed companies and fraud, and so on. Um, there aren't many situations that I can't walk into now and say, right, this and this and this and this and this. And this. Um, now, there are a couple of things that come up time and again that really mess things up. One is a board that doesn't have unity of um, purpose. So this argument, because in a crisis, everybody's an instant expert, mm-hmm. and, and, but, but without the experience. Um, so you've got this situation of kind of lounge chair experts that create a real problem. The second thing that happens that is really can be really damaging in a crisis for comms is lawyers who step in the way and say, "Oh, you can't say that because you're exposing yourself to a court case, etc., etc., etc." And it's happened time again that you almost destroy a company because some lawyer um, is stuck in the past and 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 gets on their high horse.
0: Sorry, just to intervene there, is that because I imagine in order to move beyond a set point within a crisis, at some stage, an organisation has to take responsibility for their actions. And the legal people might be saying to them, don't do that. If you take responsibility for it, you open yourself up to potential lawsuits. Is is that the case? or?
1: Yep, 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 yep. Um- that's exactly, you're opening yourself up the law because their job is to deal with risk. In my experience, there are two types of lawyers. Lawyers that don't understand external, the importance of customers, the government, the regulators and all that kind of stuff, um, and say no. The other kind of lawyer says, look, I really understand the problem you've got. If you want to say that, why don't you tweak it and just say it this way because that word there exposes you. Yeah. And that's the kind of lawyer you want to be working with. Yeah. It's also enlisted companies, the company secretary too. A good company secretary is a huge asset because of the intimate understanding and their penchant for detail that is really valuable when we are trying to communicate externally to stakeholders about a particular crisis. Yep.
0: And I I imagine, especially in today's world of social media and just about everyone and their dog having the ability to have a voice on a a global platform, you know, uh, by making an apology conditional, saying, you know, we are sorry if you felt this way or we are sorry if you think we did this, that's almost worse than no apology at all. Conditional apologies are, are
1: toxic. And you see that with politicians where there's a but. Yeah. We're really sorry, but. Or we're really sorry, and then spreading the blame. Um, uh, Yeah. So apologies, as you know, are massively overused, and the best example is with sport. So the apologies flourish on Monday when everybody comes out and says, oh, I'm really sorry about um, being caught having sex on, you know, somebody's iPhone or whatever or whatever it is. Um, it and it's everybody sees it as completely ingenuine. An apology, it only works now if it is, if you're able to convey that it is deeply felt and there will be change as a consequence. So the classic apology includes an apology, but it also includes some kind of make good, an investigation or a clean-out, that person's been sacked, that board's been, there's a transition, the chair's been transitioned out of the company, and so on and so forth. And then people can watch and see that change has occurred. So the apology is made, say, at point A, but is accepted by the whoever is listening at point B. And it might be six months down the track when when the when the company has proved that the apology is genuine and you see you've seen this with banks so there are there's one bank that I can think of not a client by the way that for me the apology was genuine the rest are not mm. because I'm not convinced that there has been substantive change inside the organisation yeah And so,
0: in closing, because we we don't want to sort of steal too much of the thunder from the presentation that you'll be giving, but, you know, to give people a taste of, of the kinds of things that they may hear, are there sort of two or three basic tips that you would say, look, obviously every crisis is different, but begin here?
1: So, well, my presentation will be very practical. Um, The seven questions to ask a journalist to help you decide whether there's a benefit or a risk in doing an interview, Um, how to deal with social media. But I'll just give you one, and then there's tips for spokespeople. I'll give you one tip. Um, When we talk about a spokesperson speaking up and out, that is very real. So if I talk about somebody speaking up, if I drop my chin, then and it's worthwhile practicing this if i drop my chin and try and get some inflection into my voice it is almost impossible but if i raise my chin so that i'm look which is what you do on a phone you look down if i raise my chin then i then i liberate my voice box and so i can really get some inflection and emotion into what i say the second thing i'd say and this is the out if i speak quietly it's very hard, it's, just try it. It's very hard to get inflection into your voice. It's just really hard. But if I speak as I've been speaking to you, I can, which is up and out, even though the microphone is only you know, 30 centimetres away, I can get a lot of inflection into my tone and I can really use my voice to convey my emotion. So there's one. That's just one tip for a spokesperson. But so, but the presentation will be peppered with very practical um, tips like that, from the beginning of a crisis to the importance of a spokesperson. And just
0: in closing on the importance of a spokesperson, I think that that's something that's often lost on a lot of organisations. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, which is have an appointed spokesperson one person who is appropriately trained appropriately briefed who is going to be the center of contact for any questions not 20 different people across the organization giving a, a range of different opinions would that be the case
1: yep so very quickly two things the first is in 20 years i've only worked with two introverts who are good spokespeople yeah. um the set this, and and so in 2021, a spokesperson should be or a CEO should be extroverted. Doesn't mean you can't be an introvert, but as I said, in 20 years, it's only happened twice, and those people were superb leaders. Um, um, the 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 second thing I'd have I'd say about this is the best spokesperson is somebody who loves being a spokesperson. And it's very un-Australian to say, I love being on TV or I love going out and representing the company externally. But it's absolutely crucial for either a person who is a leader in waiting or a person who's currently a leader. And a really good example is Guillaume Sweegers, former Deloitte, now Oricon chair, a great leader, a great role model for other leaders and he's got, a, to his credit, he's got an ego that fits it. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Well, look, Peter, thank you very much for your time. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to hear Peter presenting at the Security Conference later this year in November, you can find out more on the ASIAL website at www.asial.com.au. Peter, if people would like to know more about you, where do they find out about you?
1: I'm really hard I'm really easy to find on Google just Google Peter Wilkinson there's a dentist who pops up I don't do teeth <laughs> but you'll see Peter Wilkinson crisis communications that pops up all over the place
0: I was gonna say some of your press conferences might feel like pulling teeth though but uh, Peter <laughs> thank you Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, there are plenty more podcasts like this in the series. If you'd like to find them, you can go to the ASIOL website. You can find them on Google Play, Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, and all of the other great places that you find podcasts. And we look forward to talking to you on the next one.